Mark 6, 14 to 29. And first, let's pray. God, we thank you very much for the opportunity to come together this morning. And if for a moment to take our eyes off ourselves and to place them where they belong squarely on you, the object of our, our hope and our worship, and the giver of our life. We thank you that uh, so many servants have gone before us as good uh, and imperfect examples that your son went as a perfect example. We thank you for the example of, uh, of John, the sacrifice and the love that he showed. In your name we pray, amen. I guess I should have said John the Baptist since there are a couple of them, right? So here we are, John the Baptist. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. So thanks, Pastor Mike Ernst, for assigning me this passage. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, oh, there's so much here. So we're going to get to that in just a minute, and it's going to be really, really good. Um, but I just want to say thanks again that I can be here. Neil Brower is my name. For those of you that I have not met yet or you've not met me, um, I, am the, I serve as the district superintendent um, of the Western District for the Evangelical Free Church of America, and uh, again... You're a part of 55 or so churches that are in the part of Northern California, Northern Nevada, and, um, and I'm here to serve. I'm here to, uh, to be a support um, and to invest in you in whatever way you might have need. And so sometimes I get to do this kind of thing as well. Let me just say thank you for being such a supportive church uh, to the district and to the national and even global ministries. Um, the kinds of investments you've made are deep and they're personal, they're costly, and they're, they, they, they're wide variety. And I just want to say thank you um, for those investments. I mean, they go all the way from things like you offering us Pastor uh, Mike Ernst to serve as the instructor for our Gateway program, which is a theological training institute for people that just want to enrich themselves and then see what God might do to use them in their increased uh, uh, spiritual and biblical development and so forth. 
And so he's providing great leadership to that, and I appreciate that. And then, of course, to Adam and Libby and their family being sent off to the Middle East, and um, that's an amazing thing as well. And I know that you're praying for them heartily, and so are we. And um, so anyway, it's just a wonderful thing. And for the financial support that you offer to the district so that we can continue to serve in the ways that we hope we can, I just want to say thank you, and um, we appreciate you very much. So, so this time around, and it's not the first time, because you've met us all before, but Judy and George got to be here with us today. So Judy, wave your hand there. Hi. And George has taken his place again, laying down, taking a nap, sleeping through my sermon, like he always does. I, I like to joke, I wouldn't feel at home unless someone was sleeping through my sermon. So we bring George for that, and the rest of you can stay awake. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here, and just, uh, just know that, uh, again... Uh, I'm here to be called upon at any time you might wish. And Judy has the same kind of heart, by the way. Um, she uh, wants to be available. And um, I, I will say, and I think I can actually even be objective when I say so, even though she is my wife of now almost 40 years, that she is an incredible woman with incredible gifts and investments to make in you and um, in many different kinds of ways. And so if there's ever any reason that you might want to... Um, uh, seek that out, seek her out, um, please let us know. We can brainstorm and see what that might even mean as well. So thank you again. So we've prayed a lot today. Um, I want to do it again right now, if we could, just so that I'm in the right place continually to uh, bring to you the gospel of our, our great God and King. Father, thank you that we can draw ourselves before you today and that we want to, we desire to put ourselves in a, a, a position of submission and surrender, a position of teachability that requires humility and it requires focus, Lord. And I pray for my friends here in this room that you would give us all the ability to, to set other concerns aside because we actually believe in this divine appointment that you have chosen that we would be here because you have something to say to our hearts right now. And we pray that you would do that, that I could be a vessel and that, and that we would only hear your words, not mine, and that you would strike us deeply to the point that we would be different people leaving this place than we were coming in. So we thank you and are excited for what you're going to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> I live in the state of California, um, known now more vividly than ever probably as the state that gave Hillary Clinton the popular vote. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> My state is so blue, I will say a couple more things, um, that those who vote red sometimes don't even bother voting anymore, right? My state is, is, is so blue and, um, that some, sometimes, um, well, okay, my city I live in the city of San Francisco, right, whose ballots present really only a variety of deep blue candidates to choose from, which is pretty interesting as well. Now, you here in the city of Auburn live in the state of Jefferson. I wondered if that would, if you would, like, if you were up to speed on all of that, okay. So I joke, obviously, but, but most of the churches of the Western District of the Free Church are, in fact, I've discovered in my nearly four years in this role now, are in what would be the state of Jefferson if that legislation that's presented consistently ever passed, right? I mean, it's, it's like on the docket consistently. Um, and it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating concept. I bring this up only to observe the nature and the extremity of the disagreement some citizens have with their governing authority. That, that's just a true condition, and in some ways it's very American. Never in my lifetime has there existed a more publicized divide in our country, in, in my lifetime, I believe, than, than now. It is the, not that we haven't had greater divides in our country's history, we certainly have, but, but it's the perfect atmosphere in which to be a worshiper of the high king of heaven, don't you think? Have you been stimulated in that way? I hope, I hope you have. Our freedom and joy and strength in exalting the Savior and focusing on Jesus, the unchanging triune God of the universe, is a delightful thing. It's a freeing thing. It's a sustaining and foundational uh, part of our life as we live it out today in all, all, of the, all of today's current issues and circumstances. You see, I do not trust in the strength of horses. 
or in weapons of warfare, earthly kings, or the passage of of policy that will be overturned with the stroke of the pen in not too distant a future. I'm old enough now to have seen that happen again and again and again and again, going every direction imaginable, and it's all just a whim and by the winds of, of culture. I trust him. If our perception of any reigning authority is positive or negative, simply does not matter if our eye is clear and our heart focused on the one true and living God. Now, it is foundational, from that foundational stance of absolute assurance and security, that we now have the opportunity to view our current cultural climate, I think, through the lens provided to us in Mark chapter 6. And it's a weird, strange lens to look at this through, but we're going to. And it gives us a lot of wisdom, I think, and I hope that we can receive it. The next set of verses in your ongoing study of Mark's gospel presents an extreme in political power versus people of faith. Right? That's what we have here. There's wisdom to be gleaned from this passage. And I'm not, I'm not a political or a legislative activist. This is not a political sermon. And I will not be drawing political conclusions. If you get any of that from me, you, I've either made a big mistake or you've misunderstood me. So we can clear that up afterwards if you want to. But my calling is higher than that. And since my biblical calling is identical to your biblical calling, your calling is higher than that as well. Your focus for living and affecting transformation in the world is higher than the whimsy of legislative agendas. Let's not get confused or distracted. The solutions that we offer have teeth to them. Lasting power. Staying power. For heart transformation, the alteration of entire human beings and then the cultures that we create because of that change on the inside. Deep, lasting. The resurrection life that we offer can't be overturned by a change in the Oval Office. The real and lasting hope offered in the gospel stands strong in any tide of opinion. So we can all sit here with many different opinions and yet come together on the truth of the gospel of grace and the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, and find there that which changes the world forever. Grace is so radically above and beyond laws and statutes and the governing authorities that it gives us life, and it makes dying for it a worthy pursuit. Now, our reflection today on the life of and the death of John the Baptist is a lesson in in living and dying under governing authorities who disregard the purposes of God, who disrespect the authority of God, and even disavow the existence of God. It looks just like current day culture. And I want you to read it through that kind of a lens. Before I, I, I turn to this passage that we've had read for us and look at it more deeply, Let me set context just a little bit, which you've already had done for you in the past, but then there's a a next set of verses that's coming as well. Jesus was becoming known, wasn't he? He was becoming known for his unique wisdom, his miraculous powers, but also, interestingly, for his common stock. So it says in Mark 6 that that, um, people saw him as having come from a common father and a common mother, to whom was born five boys and then also some sisters, the text reveals to us in Mark 6. Um, lots, uh, lots of kids in a blue-collar household of obscurity and relative civic powerlessness. They were just living out life. That's who they were. They were just common people. And here comes along this Jesus. Jesus was offensive to the people. He was a surprise for sure, but kind of an offensive surprise. That is, he was stepping out of his allotted place and proper functioning. Uh, of societal norms, right? And he was disrupting, um, unexpectedly making a scene, causing a stir, right? The source of an uprising. He was, he was disturbing. His life was disturbing the peace. So Jesus reacted to this when quoting that a prophet is welcome everywhere except in his own hometown. Because they knew him too well and they knew his family too well. And they thought, who do you think you are? You're just this dumb kid. I saw you. I wiped your nose. You know, that, that kind of thing. I mean, get real on this. This, this is just real life in, uh, in, this, in, this, in this setting, in this small town. 
And so he, he said, in essence, you know, you folks think that an expert is simply somebody from out of town saying something you've already heard and you're ready to listen to him but not to one you might know. Notice he alluded to being mistrusted by people distant and very close, so hometown, own relatives, own household. It's, it's a funny, the description. He, he couldn't do much, it says in, in our text. He couldn't do much, just a couple of minor healings of a couple of sick people, <laughs> and he kept on teaching. I love that. It's almost like he had done so many incredible things that the way that the author reveals, you know, he... What would we give to be able to do a couple of minor healings around here a little bit, right? I mean, that's amazing. Then Jesus multiplied his effectiveness by sending out his followers, right, to do as he had been doing. So the spreading effect of the gospel furtherance was having its results. And, and, and by the way here, here's a powerful modeling of a statement that Jesus would make later that applies to us even today, that we would do what he did and even do greater things than he did. We would be a source for truth and we would be a source for hope a source for life, a source of healing amongst all the peoples of the world. Those of us who choose to follow him would have that kind of beautiful, life-giving influence on the people around us. He sent them out then while he was still living, and then, of course, after he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, he set us all out again and said, this is why I leave you on earth, to go and be who I was only in greater proportions. I'm not even sure I understand what that means, right? I have a hard time grasping hold of how my life might end up doing greater things than his. But he said so. Maybe it's the cumulative effect of us all that, that, that adds up to something really, really great. News was traveling fast. It, it finally reached the top of the political food chain in verse 14, where we will spend our time today. But notice that our couple of paragraphs are, are sort of an aside. They're kind of like a parentheses, if you will, between Jesus sending out his disciples to immerse themselves in their community and then those same disciples coming back together to talk about the connections that they made in that community, the effect that they had had. And in between those two historical events is this flashback. It's like a, let's look back now to this death of John the Baptist scenario. After their reporting, Jesus took them away but in the going away, had at least two adventures, right? The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, both of which have become iconic, really, in our understanding of who Jesus is and how he influenced the world and the control and the power. It's fun stuff. I mean, it's all about the gospel. And the chapter rounds out with a testimony of his messianic activities, really proving who he was to the people, demonstrating and living it out, that he was the promised one to come. Power over creation, healing, raising up the oppressed, all things scriptures of old told us the Messiah would be and do. And so he's living it out as if to say, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. He who has eyes to see, he who has ears to hear, let him hear and have life. Right? And there's the offer. It's a beautiful thing. Yeshua, Messiah, Savior of the world, drawing people to himself. So then the question's got to be asked, why this weird parenthesis right here? What? The scripture writers and God deciding what was going to be the inspired, protected, preserved, and delivered text for us, it was important that John's death was given to us here, the, the record of John's death in the book of Mark. It's a flashback, no doubt to honor John, maybe also to clarify who is who, right? Elijah's Elijah, John is John, Jesus is Jesus. Let's all be clear on that. But for our purposes today, uh, I, I want to examine this text for its wisdom, because it's full of wisdom here for us. I got, in my spending time with it, got, got this sense of almost a proverbial, I felt like I was living out Proverbs right before my eyes. The, the wise sayings that if you grab hold of them and live according to them, your life will go well for you. That, that kind of proverbial approach to this whole thing. So, so all of what we're reading here in this portion of Scripture, um, all of it is to be set in the greater context of the Gospel narrative. These were written... The Apostle John told us, the Gospel writer John told us, that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So we've got to view this story, including this story of the death of John, the Baptist, right? Um, we've got to view this story, come back to this story at the end of our time today especially, but in the whole context, to the direct application of the wisdom discovered here to our life in the Gospel and its furtherance in our community. One thing you will always hear from me, you've heard it already before, you'll expect it again, I hope, and that is that 
I believe you are the powerful gospel-furthering vessels that God has chosen. You. As you are, who you are, where you are, right now. Okay? You. And so that's going to be here too, because it always is when you read the Bible every single time. So we find ourselves in the middle of a testimony of the life of Jesus interrupted by this flashback of the demise of the baptizer, John. Jesus' reputation spreading far and wide, quickly and influentially, faith, fact, conjecture, opinion, we're blending together to create almost a mythology around who this Jesus is. People are grasping at the unknown or the known, rather, to, to kind of explain the unknown. And all these people coming back from the dead, that must be what this is. You can just see almost a, a, a culture of superstition, right, amongst these otherwise intelligent people and powerful people. It's fascinating how, how what a blend we humans are, no matter what positions we find ourselves in. So, in any case, um, most of the people in this process, many would believe, and they did, and they, and the, but, they, the, but, but the rest were left confused as to this, this king, Jesus, among them. So John is killed. His disciples gather and bury his body, as, as is recorded in the text that, that was read for, you, for us. And that's the end of it. Mark returns to the activities of Jesus, the central purpose of his writings, as you will next week in the next paragraph. But here's the wisdom I long for us to glean from John's death right here. Three Proverbs from a very human story. Proverb number one, and they're in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. The wise will find blessing under the king. Only a fool will trust in it. Verses 17 through 20, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible because he had married her. He, he, he steals his brother's wife and marries her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I love that it just says John had been saying to Herod. Don't get the picture that this is some kind of a public declaration or a public shaming of a government official. right? He, he in private, was having words with a man that had asked him to come and talk. That's really important in the way that we posture ourselves and we make our points and we become truth-tellers. Sometimes the way we tell truth makes it almost impossible to hear it. I think there's relationship here between Herod and John. Fascinating. Why would that relationship ever exist? Well, our text tells us that Herod was curious, out of his mind curious, about who this John was, even though he was confronting him about his lifestyle. Fascinating, right? There was, there was love. There was respect. There was all these things there. And, and you can see it between the lines. So John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful. Herodias had a grudge, verse 19, against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John. Look at the mixture of relationship Herod had with John. Afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, kept him safe. And and when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. I mean, it's just like this crazy tearing of, you know, limb from limb from a spiritual, intellectual kind kind of a relationship. Fascinating. I love it. So what is to be the response of good people when their leaders behave badly? Very practical question, right? I've seen far too many believing brothers and sisters living in panic mode over this election than ever in my lifetime. And it's just not necessary, my friends. I'll say that it's just not necessary. Granted, the results of the election made many of my yet-to-believing friends panic too. Even more so. I told you where I live, right? But if we perceive that there is some form of lack, in our opinion, in the life or policies of our king, right, our earthly king, what is to be our response? Can blessing be found under an ungodly ruler? Is that possible? More importantly, can we be a blessing, can we be a blessing, okay, to a secular authority system? How do we do that? We have no record of Jesus making public statements against Herod. Does anyone else find that fascinating? The context is right here. It's in the middle of Jesus' public activity. And he did not spend time talking about legislation and public policy. Or even figures that were holding key and powerful positions. That's not what Jesus did. Fascinating, isn't it? Now let's go be like Jesus. What would Jesus do, right? So it's important at that level. And it it predicts and it dictates us and our life, our activity, our investment, 
I think, as well. So it's fascinating to me. We, c- we cannot know that he said nothing, but what we do know, all we do know, is that God, in his inspired word, determined that, number one, what Jesus may have said was not among those important things that he wanted to make sure got into the Bible. It's not there. And then, two, that our interactions with governing officials must always be gospel-driven. How does the gospel play out in the midst of these issues around government? So here's the invitation God issues to us in the context of governing authority. Find blessing by being a blessing. Say it again. You can memorize this. Find blessing by being a blessing. We don't look for blessing through policy and legislation, my friends, through the exercise and the coercion and the demand of our rights according to the Bill of Rights and all those documents that were written so short a time ago in the face of the entire global history, right? We're such a young country, aren't we? But we find a blessing by being a blessing with our lives. That's how we will find the blessing. And that, that's the lesson of all of Scripture and right here in, in Mark as well. Coincidentally, it might also cost you your life, but we'll get back to that in a minute. But that's the other half of this first proverb, isn't it? Sometimes we find blessings under the cover of secular authorities. It would appear that Herod loved John. John actually was protected and honored by the king in some ways, but it could not last, could it? I mean, anybody with a head on their shoulders, oops, knows that it couldn't last, right? So... The wise will find blessing under the king, but only a fool would trust in it. God invited his people hundreds of years earlier under Babylonian cruelty, by the way, to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, right? Do you remember this story? Jeremiah 29, the prophet gave this same sage advice to these people and to us when he said, verse 7, Jeremiah 29, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. When we first moved to take this position as district superintendent, we knew that part of our calling was to move to San Francisco. And when we started traveling around like this to our churches and introducing ourselves, and they asked us where we lived, assuming that it was in the suburbs of Sacramento, as all of my predecessors had, and we told them, no, we're living in San Francisco. I tell you the truth, I do not lie. The faces of nearly everyone we told that to as members of our churches in our district dropped, darkened, and some had the ability to say out loud, I hate San Francisco, I pray for its judgment. Do you see the face that I'm making here? Okay, And it exhibits, it exhibited at the time, a genuine hatred. Which, my friends, I've gotten some four years later, I'm now bold enough to say that's not okay anymore. This is not the call of God on our life. This is not the grace that we have received and therefore we have to give. We must respect people and love people, be there for people. We can't trust governing authorities that believe in life way beyond like other than how we do. So here we are in this invitation to dwell in this land that is governed in ways that we wouldn't govern it if we were in charge. So, so in the Babylonian days, same thing. Seek the welfare of the city, right? So you got to see it. This, this is a city that is unfavorable toward us. There is reason to be angry and resentful and suspicious, even unforgiving. Notice that there is no claim that our rights be respected here, whether it's in the people of olden Babylon or the people right now under John's in John and Herod's scenario. We choose a gracious mindset toward those with whom we have nothing in common and have even abused us. We set ourselves in a favorable position to those with authority, in authority, not against them. We activate ourselves, love, work, serve, relate, in order to intentionally bring welfare to the city. We want to have a positive impact. We pray to the Lord we believe in for the sake, the goodness, the blessing to be poured out on those who do not believe in Him. That's our instruction. That's what we're called to invite it into. We enjoy whatever blessing God chooses to give them because we live with them. We live among them where he is reigning on the just and the unjust, right? Sending rains, blessing us all with that common grace that he's so famous for. And, and, And so we are there under them and for them and living with them. 
So make no mistake, however, that we would be unwise to expect or demand or trust that this blessing or covering will be long-term. But we have the strength and the freedom to live above that. John knew where he stood. John told the truth, and he worked out his calling before God in this context. The primary role of John, remember, was to pave the way for the people to accept the lordship of Jesus. It wasn't about John. It was about Jesus, right? It was never to attack the governing authorities of his day. Same for us. We are not called to fix everything wrong with policies and legislations, but to remember that we alone are the conduits of grace to a world in such deep need of grace. Our self-righteousness is not in demand here. Our clear love for Jesus and respect for the people that he came to save is in demand here. You can bet that if we have welfare when the city has welfare, that the city will be blessed by our presence as those blessed by God. May it be. We choose respect and love for our governing authorities, knowing that it will be largely, in the end, rejected. We fix our trust in Jesus, not in governmental process and seek to bring life to the city and state and nation. That is a unique opportunity of the wise. So our first proverb is simple, clear. That's real. I think it has integrity. The wise will find blessing under the king. Only a fool will trust in it. Which brings us to our second proverb in verses 21 through 28. Proverb number two, a fool is self-indulgent to his own destruction. Death comes by seduction. And, of course, this is exhibited to us in, the, in, the, in a personified way in Herod. And, and he takes such a key you know, role in this passage that, that we, we've got to see his life and learn from it, right? The example of Herod among his relatives and his friends and his, his associates is pathetic. I mean, just to watch this man who otherwise is intelligent, seemingly, he has power, he's been given positions, and just the way that he's being jerked around by all kinds of external forces in his life is just sad. I just think, doesn't he have more personal strength than that? There is, there's deep regret being conveyed in the manipulative request for John's head on a platter here. Uh, Herod was seduced. He was intoxicated. No doubt by the sexual energy in the room. No doubt by strong drink. No doubt by all kinds of other things going on there. But less obviously, probably the, the popularity issues, the, the family dynamics, the political climate, right? The need to impress and put his personal glory on display, that always gets us in trouble when we have to puff ourselves up because none of us belong on platforms like these. Yeah. So, Herod. Fascinating. Again, we glance easily at the the last three decades of the leadership, both in and out of the believing community, I mean, our life today, like the last 30 years, think about it for a minute. And we find there are all kinds of self-indulgent corruption, don't we? It, it's really kind of depressing. I mean, it's discouraged all of us at one time or another, hasn't it? Um, the fallout is destructive. We hope that our leaders are superhuman. <laughs> don't we? I mean, catch yourself next time you do that, right? And go, oh, wait, that would be silly. They're probably sitting on a toilet somewhere right now. You see, they're just humans, and they're incredibly weak. And we all are. And somehow we found ourselves like turtles on fence posts. How'd I get up here? Didn't do it on my own, right? The only thing that can happen next is really bad. (laughs) Fall off, get shot off, right? So we hope these leaders, these governmental leaders, these faith leaders could be better than us, but they really aren't, and we aren't, and, and, and it is in that context, I think, that we're invited to trust in one Lord, and in one head, in one master, and that's Jesus only. That's where we place our trust, right? That's where our trust belongs. There is no other worthy object of our trust. It turns out that they are just people, um, and that's true for any position and every position on the entire earth. The, the list of narcissistic people who are being seduced is long and before our eyes, thanks to technology, right? We, we see the failures of people more consistently, both people in the church and outside of the church. We see it all the time. And so the second proverb is really true. A fool is self-indulgent to his own destruction. Death comes by seduction. And so the big question today is, what are you seduced by? 
You're being seduced right now in one way or another or maybe several ways right now in your life. What is it that seduces you? I'll give you a couple of examples just to kind of prime the pump. The seduction of being known, social media. I think that that's its seduction. All of the fallout that comes from the effort to say, does anyone out there know me and do you think I'm cool? The seduction of gaining fame and the price paid for its brevity. Yeah, you might become known and oh boy, have to pay for that later. The seduction of exerting power and the death that's inevitable. The seduction of temporary pleasure and the harm brought to self and the collateral damage to others when we gratify that temporary pleasure-seeking moment, right? Seduction. The seduction of comfort. The seduction of painlessness. The seduction of uncomplication in our life. Some of us, if Christians, have thought that that was some sort of a divine right, that we would have a comfortable existence. And it seduced us into misdefining our faith. Seduction. Wow. Amazing. The seduction of the illusion of control, safety, and protection. We're not in control of anything, ultimately, are we? It is an illusion. And yet we live like we are, and we demand to be in control around others. Fascinating. It gets us in all kinds of trouble, doesn't it? The seduction of image. Here's one relevant to our passage and our time. It's the seduction of religious freedom. You ready for this? You might be really mad at me now, but that's okay. I just leave, right? And you can talk about me later behind my back. The seduction of religious freedom, and maybe its sister, rights under the constitutional law, the seduction of the Bill of Rights, it has changed us. We, we, have been, we think we have rights that we can demand now. And, of course, there's a secular version of this in our culture today, too, and everybody's out there writing up a whole new list of new rights. And we laugh at those. But be careful, because if you look to your own heart, you'll recognize that you have made demands on certain rights because some human being put a list together at one point. We sanctioned them politically, governmentally, historically. But the only right we have is to live under the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to die in His name. That's really the only right we have, to live for Him and die. Wow! Am I going too far here? But it would certainly alter the way that we view and the way that we relate politically, legislatively, in our conversations with lots of people that we disagree with at different levels, wouldn't it? So Herod was under the spell of his position, his wife, his stepdaughter, the political community, his spiritual curiosity, right, and the way that it conflicted with his lust for power. He, He was just seduced. Don't let the extreme nature of Herod's story keep you from getting honest with yourself about the seductions in your own life. See, seemingly really good things are seductive as well, right? I've named a couple of them, but how about the craving for a perfect family? We've become family worshipers, friends. Yikes! Now I'm fired for sure. It's seductive, isn't it? It can bring us down, and it can bring our family down with it. Who or what in your life has you under their spell? Herod was spellbound to the point of of foolishness and and death, of course. And on a very practical note, let me say this. He made promises. He swore an oath. He, he like, said anything, I'll give it to you, right? And he did it in front of people and in public and all that. He made promises. We throw the P word around like crazy. And we've got to be, I'd love to invite you to make only one promise in your life if you have to. And that's the one you made to your spouse, that you're going to stay married. And not all of us were even able to keep that promise along the way, and there's life beyond that, that promise in and of itself. All I'm suggesting here today is that there's no other thing worthy of making a promise to it, attaching a promise to it. I promise we'll have ice cream later, honey. Oh, come on, right? So it sounds silly now because I'm just saying it out loud, but you'll say it this week. (laughs) If you just do this now, I promise then we'll do that later right? Or how about the great big one, like, I promise I'll always be there for you. You can always rely on me. Well, that, that is completely untrue. None of us have that kind of control in our life. Let's just stop using the promise word and figure out a way to say things about our commitment, our intentions, our plans. We can be committed. We can still be responsible adults and, and, and like raise our kids well in this regard without making promises and oaths that we simply do not have the control. We must have humility in our heart 
we cannot have control so as to be sure that we're going to be able to live it out. Promise-making and promise-seeking, both, are seductive and dangerous, and they're self-indulgent. So let's move on to proverb number three, then, after these first two. The fearful die on their way to death, while the righteous offer their lives on a platter. I love this one. It sounds crazy, I know. We, we, we spent the holidays in Nebraska with a bunch of our kids and grandkids. It seems to come up almost every time we're together. And I think I might have even have mentioned this and told this story like maybe the first time I was with you guys three years ago. Um, anyway, we were, we were with um, six of our grandkids and, and, and their parents and so forth. And I, I overheard them one day. It was just in passing. It was just like hubbub of the family swirling around the house, right? Um, in, in a very humorous way, I think, too. Somebody referred to Judy, something that we started a long time ago, teaching them when they were babies all the way through till this day, I heard, I heard one of our grandkids say, well, I, I know that grandma wants to be the one who dies first. Did you hear that? Do you remember that? No memory? Yeah, it was just so passing. It's like almost everybody missed it. Well, I know that grandma's the one that wants to die first. You see, a long time ago, we, we, we decided that and, and to make it a part of the Brower family culture and values that he who dies first wins. And then there's biblical backup to this, you guys. I'm not taking anything away from the pain surrounding the actuality of death scenarios, okay? So don't get me wrong. I'm not laughing that off right now. But, but even Paul himself grappled in his own heart whether to live or die. Remember that? Whether to be in the presence of his Savior, he preferred death. But to live on for your sake and the gospel, right, is better. So, so as if he had control over it, he said, so I think I'll stay a while longer, right? And as possessors of eternal life, we are free to give little thought to protecting at all costs this short, alien, sojourning time we're spending here and now. Part of our heart-level transformation, I think, is that we have eyes to see beyond this body and beyond this breath and beyond this life. We know we are citizens of a better country, amen? We, we are aliens and strangers and sojourners here. I, sp- I spent a little bit of time this week, actually, Judy and I did, with Adam and Libby's new boss, Alan. Some of you maybe have met him. I don't know if you have or not, but... We got to sit around a table with him for lunch, and it was just good to hug him again one more time. And, and he, just, he, he told us just really briefly how, how great Adam and Libby are doing in their family. That they're doing really well, have adapted incredibly, just have gone all the way in, and it's just been this, this cool thing. And I spent a little bit of time thinking through how in the world something like that can happen. And, and you know why they can, right? Because they've embraced their alien status. That's why. They've offered their lives up, literally for higher things, right? And when you do that, you're in the driver's seat now. You're free now. Just like John the Baptist did, same thing. On the other hand, the fearful die all the way to their actual death, right? While the righteous offer their lives, offer their lives on a platter. That's the strength and power we have It's where the gospel stands clear in our story in Mark 6. Death was on the line. Our mistake is thinking it never is, right? Death is always lurking, but we are the righteous. The old, including sin and its consequences and judgment and condemnation and death, have all passed away. We are those who have been declared righteous, made righteous by holy God. We are new. All things have become new. Part of that radical newness is that we do not fear death any longer. In fact, we can look forward to it because it's better than this life. And what if it could be directly impactful to the furtherance of the gospel, like John the Baptist? How cool would that be? What an honor to give our life away in that way. So, like John, we offer our heads on platters. (laughs) This is just, just too, like... I've often said the Bible's at least rated R. It's like this stuff is often so violent and so crazy and so wild in the Bible. I mean, anybody in here thinks the Bible's boring? You haven't read it. It's crazy. Read it. So here we are offering, this guy offering his life, his head. Now granted, his his head was taken from him rather than him offering it. I get that. Okay, I didn't miss that detail. But, but all those early followers of Jesus, and many, if, if not most, of today's followers worldwide, know that their loyalty to Christ is going to cost them their life. We live in a very strange bubble here in America, and we think we deserve religious freedom. 
and protection and rights, don't we? It's a weird bubble, historically, politically, currently, in every way imaginable, and we're not going to have it for a lot longer, I think. Then what? So what? We've already offered our lives on a platter. That's what, if we have, but I invite you into considering it even today. So, less of John, more of Jesus, pathway for the Savior so that all will see him. And, you know, there's really nothing else that our lives, um, nothing else worthy for our lives to be offered for. Those who live in fear for their lives are dead already. But those of us who believe that he who dies first wins truly live. I put it this way for years. Listen, we are never ready to truly live until we are truly ready to die. It's the power of the gospel. And John was ready to die, so the question is, are you? Are you ready to die? Or do you live in fear? Here's one way to get a hint. Listen to your own prayers. Are they dominated by words like safety, health, protection? Or are they full of longing for the furtherance of the gospel in the lives of unworthy people, no matter the cost to your own well-being? Just listen to the content of your prayers. Go ahead, offer your life on a platter, and be free. Freedom. I watched Braveheart again this week. <laughs> Any of you that have, I, you know, I'm sorry, okay, because it's gruesome in so many different ways, graphic in every way about that old way of life in the 1200s. But he lived for love and freedom, and he had died to himself. He had let go of everything. He lived like this. And then he died losing his head, crying out, freedom and you know mel gibson uh bless his heart (laughs) his themes are amazingly full of biblical faith issues aren't they for love and freedom that's what that's what braveheart was all about and he gave his life up for and he was able and willing to die and he was so powerful at least the way the way gibson depicted william wallace in that movie so, so here, 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 let me wrap up. Proverb number one, the wise will find blessing under the king. Only a fool will trust in it. Proverb number two, a fool is self-indulgent to his own destruction. Death comes by seduction. Number three, the fearful die on their way to death while the righteous offer their lives on a platter. So for Judy and I, I've already mentioned it, our, our earthly lives and deaths have now taken on the form of, of ending our days in a city and a culture and a mindset that is San Francisco. And I don't I don't need to detail that anymore, but the day-to-day realities of differing values and beliefs has really brought us to our knees in dependence and to our feet, really, in celebration for the privilege that it is for, our, uh, for us to, to offer our life on that platter. I, I mentioned that I watched the movie Braveheart. I did Braveheart this week. I did it because Judy um, volunteered us to go babysit for one of our friends while they went out to the symphony. And so I was in, uh, in their apartment. She started there, put Aiden to bed. I came later. She left and went back to be with uh, some students from one of our Chinese churches that she ministers to on a regular basis. And, and I stayed there with Aiden and watched Braveheart. The cool thing about that is, is the relationship that we have with that family and that couple and so forth. It was the only family in San Francisco so far that I've had the, the honor of marrying. I performed their wedding ceremony. And we love them. We walk with them. We live life with them. And we're all on a journey. And we'll see where it goes. But it occurs to me that the only way that we can guarantee that our heads will never be taken from our shoulders for the sake of Christ is if we give away our head first. Which brings me to the title of my sermon today that you may have already noticed. It's one statement of truth, and that is simply this. Nobody can take a life already given. It is the example of Jesus Paul said it in Romans 12, right? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, as a form of worship. Jesus declared it the same way. It's the way he lived and died. John 10, remember, verse 17 and 18, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. And then in John 19 is when it actually happened, right? He's with Pilate at that point. Pilate enters the praetorium and says to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gives him no answer. Pilate gets ticked off and says to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered as one who had already laid down his life for his father's will. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. We dwell in the same authority. Bow your heads with me, would you? Nobody can take a life already given. Mel Gibson did it also in The Passion of the Christ, right? Same themes, same lessons. The thing he did best in that movie was to depict the journey of Jesus to the cross as Jesus being the one in charge. No one took his life from him. Have you ever noticed that if you've watched it? Watch it again. He kept pursuing death. He kept moving forward. He laid his own hand on the cross to have the nail driven through it. Powerful stuff. And the invitation that God has made to us today. If there is anybody here today, and of course I'm the guest, so I don't even know who you all are and what you believe in and what you don't, what you've given your life to, what you're keeping your life for. But my hope today is that this journey that you're on would lead you to a place where you recognize, you know what, this life thing is a big privilege. It's, it's not just something mundane and boring to just be endured. There's great things in store here, and that's especially true when we recognize that there is a God who created us in his image, and he loves you with an everlasting love, with an individual love. He knows you, and he's inviting you into this life of death. And the, the, the celebration, the adventure of that, oh, it's what's worth living for. So, Father, I pray that you would draw us into yourself. May it be that we would find our life in you and our purpose in you. And every time we find the emptiness in all of our other pursuits, that we would recognize how clearly and how completely and truly life can only be found in you. And so we offer you our lives today. I offer you, my friends, here and ask that they might take the courage to now, even now, in these quiet moments of their heart, again, say to you, Lord Jesus, here is my life. Take it. Take it. I'm yours. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.